0: Before we have our prayer, I wanted to introduce a friend of mine who's a guest tonight, Mr. Fred Wilson. He's been handing out the sheets of paper. Fred and I have known each other for about 25 years. Fred's working with the Institute for Creation Research. He goes all over the world teaching creation workshops, and particularly with homeschoolers, showing them how to teach science in the home and uh, he's going to come out with a, I guess, Fred, when's your book going to be published? Early spring spring, he'll be publishing a book on how to teach science hands-on training and um, he would just tell me some exciting things he's doing with high school students now and and teaching creation by actually having them solve problems and uh, using, uh, what's the guy's name, the new book? Oh, yeah, Behe's uh, Darwin's Black Box. The guy is an evolutionist, but he's realized that Darwinism doesn't solve a problem of order. And so, um, anyway, it's a kind of a neat, uh, neat ministry Fred's had. He's been to Africa, he's just come back from the Philippines, and uh, wide open uh, school in the Philippines, a secular university, with 11,000 students, want to hear about creationism. Complete entree. Don't tell the ACLU yet, though, because they haven't got there with the lawyers. Um, But uh, anyway, wide-open ministries. So, a lot to be thankful for. Father, we thank you for the fact that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the Church of the Living God. And we thank you for our salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus, and the fact that he came to this planet Uh, and condescended to walk among us and die for our sins. And we thank you that he is now at your right hand making intercession for us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to his word. In Christ's name, amen. Um, What I want to do tonight, the handout is for next week. We'll follow the same practice. We hand out material. If you'll read it over. And then for the next week, that'll be the topic. Um, we are on the life of Christ. We've dealt with his birth, his life, and for some of you who have just joined in, that's okay. Just, just kind of go along with us. You'll, you'll see how we, how the thing unfolds. Um, the handout tonight has to do with two titles, two vocabulary terms that Jesus Christ used to identify who he was to his contemporaries, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He borrowed those, or took those, out of the text of the Old Testament. So it's a case where you, it gets back to our theme, you know, we've said a thousand times, you can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament, two-thirds of God's Word is the Old Testament, and yet you never hear it taught, never hear it preached. And the reason, frankly, since I've been in the ministry, I can say this, the reason why you don't hear the Old Testament teach is it takes a lot of study. And ministers get interrupted. They have this and that, and everybody wants them to do this, and the board wants them to do that, and they're doing everything. And the problem is that this takes away their time. And one of the one of the prices of doing that to a pastor is that it diminishes their study time, and therefore ultimately diminishes their teaching time. But in this class, we're not going. We're again, we're not trying to substitute for exegetical teaching. We're just trying to develop a way, a framework of tying together the Word of God in such a way, structuring it in such a way that it directly opposes the heart of the world system in which we live. The world system is evil, it's deceptive, and this is the information age. And one of the battles that we are going to face as Christians, that the other Christians in previous generations may not have had to face quite what we are facing in this sense, that we are drowning in a sea of information. And the problem with that is, we have massive amounts of information, and if we don't know how to manage that information, how to discern, how to pick and choose our way through it, um, we're we're asking to be deceived and led astray. So, this is why thinking scripturally, in, in terms of a framework, is important. And I'm going to, tonight, review some of the methodologies of of thinking through Scripture, and we're going to review what we taught about last year on the person of Christ. So for those of you who just joined us, this will be kind of a review on two things about Christ, his birth and his life, and what those events in history have taught us, what new doctrines, what new teachings they've added to the previous teachings of the Old Testament. One of the things, one of the elementary things, that must be known is that there are only two actual approaches to God and thinking in the world. And uh, we've mentioned this several times, and those of you who've been here with me for a few years know this diagram. You've seen it a hundred times. But we want to... um, Is that okay, Tommy? Okay? Um, We want to organize the way we decide what we're going to do in our everyday life. And it will certainly help you to realize that when it comes down to the bottom line, there are only two world views. Only two. There are permutations and combinations. There may be red tulips and purple tulips and red tulips, but they're all tulips. And there may be a lot of different religions around, but at the bottom, they share one of these two bases. They have to, the splitting, the dividing line, has to do with the creator-creature distinction. Only in the Bible do you have a distinction between an ex nihilo, that is, an infinite personal creator, and his creation everything else and all other worldviews may talk about gods, angels, people, animals, rocks, atoms, whatever you have, but it's all part of this. And this term on the right side, you'll hear me use a lot. And as we go through this, uh, we're going to talk about it again and again because it's called the continuity of being. What all that means is this, that man visualizes the the whole and all the gods and the man and everybody else are subgenres, subcategories of being. That's not true. The Bible says that God is different and distinct from His creation. He always has been distinct. He always will be distinct. And no way are you going to blur this distinction. The Bible, in other words, holds to what we call a two-level view of reality. All paganism holds to a one-level view of reality. The bottom line is this. In the Bible, the thing that finally calls the shots is the personal sovereign God who holds all his creation responsible. At the bottom, we have ultimate responsibility as men and women before the God who has created us. That's the bottom line, ultimate responsibility. I emphasize those terms, ultimate responsibility, because I want to show you what happens when you get rid of this. This is not theory. I know when I teach it on Thursday nights, it sounds sometimes like theory. But it's not theory. It can, it's like two operating systems in your computer. A big debate now in circles whether we're going to go with um, Windows or you're going to go with Unix or you're going to go with some operating system as one or the other. And as individual people, we have two operating systems. We have an operating system in the flesh, and we have an operating system given to us by the Spirit, through God's grace. And we're going to operate in one of the two two modes. When we operate in this mode, thinking that God, nature, man, and everybody else is all mixed part of one being, the bottom line out of all this is that, finally, no one is responsible. Finally, we have impersonal fate and chance. And if that's the case, then I'm a victim. You're a victim. Now, I point to this bottom line because there's an agenda that operates. Underneath all the high-sounding words, there's a very simple spiritual agenda at work here. Observe it. The agenda is, I, as a sinner, want to ensure... I want to get an insurance policy that keeps me from being held accountable." So man creates, historically, religions, philosophies, anything he can do to convince himself that he is not ultimately responsible to his Creator. And that's the bottom line of all this. We can talk biology, we can talk philosophy, we can talk psychology, we can talk geology, we can talk astronomy as we did back when we were doing Genesis, all of those, but the bottom line of it all is there's two worldviews that are competing here. At any given moment, we're operating in terms of one or the other. Now, another thing that we've tried to show here is, I have a little, the little cartoon that I showed uh, last year, uh, one of our... Thursday night loyalists put, you know, you go and see this fish on the bottom, you know, the fish that you see the ichthus on people's automobile bumpers, and that's the sign of the Christian. And, uh, oops, yeah, okay. And so, in order to ridicule the Christians, now there's a new bumper sticker out that looks like this Darwin with feet on her, showing that evolution occurred and, you know, animals came out of fish. Well now, there's a counter bumper sticker to that one. And that is that the big fish called truth is eating up Darwin. So what we're talking about here is a strategic envelopment. And I've drawn this over the ensuing uh, Thursday nights because this is what we're gonna show. I'm gonna show you this using the birth and life of Jesus tonight. But here's, here's the strategy. If we have some sort of topic that we're talking about, whether it's in whatever field, just imagine whatever topic it is. Tonight we're gonna talk about the virgin birth of Christ, the life of Christ, but it could be anything. If we're talking about this topic, we talk about it and we encapsulate it in our worldview. We don't talk about something in isolation. We always talk about it in terms of something else, our own worldview. And we use our worldview to discuss this. The issue is that as we go out in society, we may talk about a religious topic to somebody, we may talk about Jesus Christ, and you'll see this tonight in connection with his birth and his life, that the non-Christian will take that historic claim of the Bible that God became man, he was virgin born, and they will absorb it inside their own work such that it won't be a converting truth. That's the spiritual battle. So here we have a chunk of the Gospel. We put it out for a witness, for a testimony, and it becomes absorbed, reinterpreted, and insulated ultimately by this false view of paganism. Of course, what we want to do as Christians is the same thing, except we want to look at it in terms of the Bible. And the biblical worldview will be used to encapsulate it. Now, I'm going to read a little story, and you think about this strategy, and see if you get the point at the bottom of this. This was uh, my son, who works at the Air Force uh, Rome Laboratories up in New York. Uh, The group of Christians in the laboratory were passing this around on the computer, and uh, I think it's a classic. One day, a group of scientists got together and decided that man had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell God that they were done with him. The scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can clone people and do many miraculous things. So why don't you just go and get lost? God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. After the scientist was done talking, God said, Very well. How about this? Let's say we have a man-making contest. To which the scientist replied, Okay, great. But God added, Now we're going to do this just like I did back in the days of Adam. The scientist said, Sure, no problem. Bent down and grabbed himself a handful of dirt. God looked at him and said, No, 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 no. You get your own dirt. Now, the bottom line of that story is presuppositionalism. That's the creative-creature distinction. And it's like Cornelius Van Til years ago was on the subway in Philadelphia and he saw this little unruly kid slap her father's face. But she was sitting in his lap. She couldn't reach his face unless she sat in her father's lap. And Van Til went on over the years to develop this into a presuppositional apologetic. And what he means is is that man needs to rely upon God to argue against God. Man needs the tools of logic. He needs the tools of historical experience. He needs observational data of God's creation in order to argue and construct an argument against God. And so, here, what God is, the story basically is saying, you have to have a starting point. And the man who wants to be an autonomous person and creation has to start somewhere. That's the problem. How do you start without relying upon that which God created? So, the irony is that all unbelief needs belief in order to get started. So, what we want to say, we want to divide up how we look at life. And again, I want to introduce these two ideas. Uh, two ways of looking, get used to thinking in terms of two ways of looking at life. And uh, as I say, we're going to head into the the, um, New Testament story of Jesus, but we've got to look at the agenda that's happening. Um, Let me see if we can get this focused here a little bit better. Often it is said that the Christians have a knowing problem, that all we're asking people to do is believe. And, of course, we autonomous creeds, we have got a solid foundation under our feet, and it's you Christians are the ones that are floating around in this believism thing. But if we don't believe, we know. Well, that's not true. On the Christian basis, let's look at what we're talking about. The Christian thinks God's thoughts after him. Prior to our thinking, whose thought? Who's thought first? God has thought. Why is it that we can think and reason? Because we've been made to think and reason by one who is a greater thinker and reasoner. God is the basis for thinking and logic. And because of that, because he is pre-existing, because he is a pattern for creation and salvation, Because of all that, we can operate. We operate as derivative, as secondary, as reflectors of our Creator. We are made, the Bible says, in the image of God. What does image mean? It's the image of God. God wasn't made in the image of man. Man was made in the image of God. So we view knowing as a problem of faith resting in the one who is the basis for our thinking. That's our faith rest. Now what happens is over the, over the time when men become sinners, is that we have this attitude that I want to go my own way. I will reconstruct my worldview up here in my head because deep down, I really want to, although I won't admit this. Deep down, what, is, what am I getting at? I'm trying to avoid ultimate responsibility before God. So I will literally try to recreate the universe, to falsify it, to pervert it, such that it relieves the pressure on my conscience. Now what I've just said is infuriating to today's intellectuals. The idea that there's an agenda operating behind the scenes, of course there's an agenda. That's the agenda right here. Don't ever forget, behind every thought, there is an agenda. There is a reason why people think they are, and even mathematics is not immune from this. We have showed this slide before, but again, by way of review, these are the limitations of human knowledge. Too small to read at the back, I realize this is a diagram of all experience. On the ordinate, we have space, and on the abscissa of this graph we have time. Time from very uh, small increments of time all the way to large amounts and large units of time, very small units of space to very large units of space. And all human experience, all your experience, all your life is lived in that shaded area. And outside of the shaded area, there are all kinds of things that you will never know, I will never know, we just can't reach it. So we are operating out of a very limited base, and it doesn't make any difference tonight whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, doesn't make any difference where you're coming from, you're still trapped inside that domain. You always remain trapped inside that domain. You can never have infinite experience, and therefore, any time you try to generalize about reality, this ought to be, that ought to be, this is true, that isn't true, you are generalizing unless you trust the Word of God. If you decide not to trust the Word of God, then you're constructing out of this limited area an extrapolation. That's what you're doing. So either you do that, or you come to rely upon the Word of God. There are no other alternatives. So this is why we say we start with a scripture. The result of all this, when we don't start with a scripture, is we come to this kind of a situation. Here's the unbelieving counterpart to the Christian. And we call it pagan, like I said last time. Pagan means in the sense, one who does not believe in the God of the Bible. I wish I could get this focused a little bit better. Well, it's about best I can do. Um, the pagan, remember we said, what is the Christian? The Christian is to think God's thoughts after him. Now what does the pagan do? What's the counterpart to the Christian who thinks God's thoughts after God thinks the thoughts? The pagan tries, now watch this, the pagan tries to think like God, and let's just stop there. Why does the pagan have to try to think like God? Why does he have to try to think like God? Because he's got to have absolutes. He's got to have universals. He's got to have yes-nos that dominate. He's got to have all these great categories, but but he's not omniscient. So he's got to pretend he's omniscient in order to get the categories going. So he tries to think like God, but now the rest of that sentence. Independently of God. So, he's not, by deliberate action and choice of the sinful heart, I don't want to submit to the authority of the Word of God. I want to be like Eve in the garden, who said, I will take what the devil has told me, I will take what God has told me, because after all, God said, if I eat this tree, eat of this tree, what's going to happen? I'm going to die. What has the devil told me? If I eat of this tree, I will not die. Now, if Eve wants to take a middle-of-the-road position, how is she going to find out who's speaking the truth? The only way Eve can tell whether this proposition is true or this proposition is true is do what? Disobey God and eat the tree. So, her choice is to do an experiment, but then if she does the experiment, she's already sinned, and why is that a sin? Because the experiment presupposes what about these two statements? The God statement, the Satan statement. They're both the same authority. So, what she's done is she's taken the Creator's authority that's up here and the creature's authority down here, and she's already made them the same. She's going to say that God and Satan both together are of the same authority, and I don't know one from the other, so I have to do a test. So that's the autonomous person, tries to think like God, but independently of God. And the result is that we don't discover truth on that basis. We don't discover truth that's there before we thought it. We make it up as we go. Ultimately, at the bottom line, all pagan thought invents truth. It doesn't discover truth. It invents truth because truth goes on up here. That's where it's going. The result is we have this finite experience I showed you in the diagram, trying to move it to the left, move it to the right, get it big enough so I can control my life, so I can get some absolute, some order in my life. I'm going to trust me. It's going to be me. I am the authority here. So that's the story of what happens. Now what we want to do is we want to go now into and review the things we've learned about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to start, if you'll turn your Bibles, to Mark chapter 8. This is sort of the theme of the way we're approaching these four great events That have to do with Christ, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. This is the challenge that Jesus Christ gives every man and woman. And this is the challenge we want to follow through and particularly pay attention to how we're answering this question. Our Lord asks the question, we have to give an answer to him. Now, the question is, on what basis and how do we give this answer back to the Lord? Chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the court road, while they were walking, he questioned his disciples and said, Who do people say I am? And they said to him, Well, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. But others say, Oh, you're one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And that's the question Jesus poses to every man, woman, and child. Who do you say that I am? And that's what we're going to start. We, we, we started that last year, and that's what we want to go on this year and study, is the birth of Christ and the life of Christ. So let's start with that first topic, the birth of Jesus Christ. That's something that happened in history, and men have to respond to it and interpret it. The birth... Of the Lord Jesus Christ. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ has an offense to men because this birth claims to be absolutely unique in the history of the human race. Never before, never shall be again a birth like the Lord Jesus Christ, a virgin birth. And that's the claim of the New Testament. It's the claim of prophecy. So immediately we're faced with a problem. What problem does a virgin birth pose? Why is the virgin birth controversial? The virgin birth is controversial because it, in face-to-face now with a miracle. Now I've got to deal with my worldview. Is, are all children born the same way? Out of my experience, I may have seen, if I'm a... Uh, pediatrician or obstetrician, I might have seen thousand five hundred and twenty-one babies born in my life. So I say in the basis of my experience of one thousand five hundred and twenty-one different births, I have never ever seen a virgin birth. Okay? Valid observation? Valid observation. Now I conclude from that data that there can't be. And therefore, there's an absolute zero probability of there ever being a virgin birth. What have I just done to go from the first statement to the second statement? My first statement was true, but it was based on limited experience. Then I generalized claiming that out of this 5, 1,521 births, that I can say that that represents reality. But what did we say before? Remember the diagram that we said? Every one of us lives inside a domain, a limited domain. There it is. How do you get outside the domain to make an absolute statement? You have to what? To claim to get outside the domain, you have to claim that you think as God. You have to claim as an omniscience in order to make that generalization. So. The person who argues against the virgin birth says, I've experienced this and therefore on the basis of this, I say as a generalized statement, zero. There never was a virgin birth. Now this actually happened, and for those of you who have joined us this year, uh, you won't have access to these notes, these are early notes, but I want to quote something to you because here are quotes from two groups of people in the New Testament age that denied the virgin birth of Christ. Let's listen to them. This is the actual testimony of people in Judaism who said that this claim that Jesus Christ was uniquely born is a falsehood. Rabbi Simeon Aza said, I found a family register in Jerusalem and on it was written, such and such is a bastard through the transgression of the law of thy neighbor's wife. Joseph Klausner, a Jewish scholar, writes of this Mishnaic section that Jesus is here referred to seems beyond all doubt. Klausner notes that throughout the Jewish Talmud, including its Mishnaic section, Jesus is known as Yeshu ben Pantera, Jesus the son of Pandera, a title which may refer to Mary's alleged paramour or to the virgin birth claim itself. Virgin in Greek is Parthenos. Another Talmudic scholar, Herbert Danby, summarizes the entire Talmudic reference to the Virgin Birth claim Talmud was the Jewish writings about this period. A Yeshu called Natsri, or so son of state or a son of Pantera, was born out of wedlock. His mother was called Miriam. She was a woman's hairdresser. The word M is a pun on the name Mary Magdalene. Her husband was Pappus, the son of Yehuda, and her paramour a Russian soldier. So the, the, the analysis of Jesus' birth, right from in his long time period, this is not now, this is centuries ago. The response of unbelieving men to this claim was that Jesus Christ was a bastard. He was an illegitimate child. That Mary fornicated with a Roman soldier. So, right away, we got controversy right here. The virgin birth forces you to say a miracle happened or we got a big problem. So you see, the Gospel is controversial in its whole essence, and we can't escape that as Christians. Get used to it. When you testify as a Christian, you are the center of controversy. You are going to be attacked. In your own family, people are going to ridicule you. Get used to it, because this is the big game. This is a big spiritual battle that's going on here against the world system. Jesus Christ was virgin-born. And therefore, if he was not, then it makes Mary a fornicator. So, the non-Christian says, here's the virgin birth, and I'm going to envelop it in my frame of reference, and my frame of reference says that the Lord Jesus Christ was illegitimate, and Mary was a fornicator. So that's how I take this claim, this virgin birth claim, and I suck it up like an amoeba, digest it, and immunize it against bothering me. I'm no longer bothered by the virgin birth claim. You Christians can talk Jesus all you want to. I say he was a bastard. Now, what has happened? We've taken a chunk of the Gospel and we've allowed the world system to encapsulate itself around the chunk and neutralize it. Just been neutralized. We also have the Gentiles doing the same thing. And last year, you'll remember, that I read from you, the most famous sermon in the early century, was done on one Sunday morning in June 1922 in New York City. That particular Sunday, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who had written many, many books, he's a liberal Baptist minister who was asked to preach in the Presbyterian Church, and he chose that Sunday morning to give the following sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win?, and by the way, if you go into your library of your grandparents, you look around your grandparents' books, wherever you go in your family tree, whoever was living and actively thinking and reading and buying books between 1910 and 1930, go back to the library, and I'll bet you, in your own home, in somewhere, you're going to find a book by Harry Emerson Fosdick. One of the most popular titles you'll probably find is Manhood of the Master. I mean, he was the Norman Vincent Peale of his time. He was sort of like the liberal version of Billy Graham. And lots and lots of people bought his books, and it's pure liberal garbage, but it enthralled the people who lived in this country, particularly here in the East. He was the spokesman for the Christian faith. So he says, as he got up that morning, here for example is one point of view, that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact. Now notice the tolerance here. The President has just got through talking about tolerance for everybody except Christians that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact, it actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the Master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. That is one point of view, and many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. You know when somebody starts talking this way, you know what's going to come next, don't you? But, side by side with them in the evangelical churches is a group of equally loyal and reverent people. Who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as a historical fact? Here in the Christian churches are these two groups. The question which the fundamentalist raises is this. Shall one of them throw the other out? Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship people who differ on points like these? You see? Now the battle is, the claim is this. What do you do with this claim? Are you going to absorb it inside a framework that is anti-Christian? Or are you going to let the Bible speak for itself? Well, how do we let the Bible speak for itself? We go back and we say, is the virgin birth a minor point of the New Testament? And what do we find? Let's enlarge this a little bit and say, well, what does the New Testament say? How does it put this in perspective? So let's go down here and look. Number one. The virgin birth cannot be separated from everything else. Learn this about things you know to be true from the Scriptures. Don't ever let a piece of truth become isolated from the rest of Scripture. The moment you allow yourself to do this in a conversation or in your own heart as you deal with temptations, that's when you, we, we get destroyed. We've always got... the whole. All the truth of Scripture is a team. And you can't take one player from the team because if you do... It's like one piece in the chessboard. He'll get surrounded and wiped out. The virgin birth is linked in three ways in the Old Testament. Number one, it is a prophetic necessity. Verse, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 to 16, but particularly verse 14. The virgin birth is a prophetic necessity because of the Old Testament text. Calls for it. People will say, oh well, it really doesn't say that. Some of the translations in Isaiah 7 say, young woman shall conceive. Excuse me, but it seems to me, if I'm not too mistaken in my experience, young women are busy conceiving quite normally. What is unusual about women conceiving? They conceive, in this church, they conceive all over the place. So, that's not some special sign of anything. The special sign is that a young woman who is a virgin can seat, and we know that that's the true interpretation. How do we know that? Because the Jews who knew Hebrew, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament to Greek, guess what word they used to translate the word Alma? Parthenos. Why did they pick that word? Because they obviously, the translators from Hebrew to Greek, knew what the Old Testament text was and they deliberately translated the Hebrew by a word that couldn't mean anything but a virgin. So, the Bible requires a virgin birth. Not just Isaiah 7, but there's another passage. And we dealt with this in some depth last year. Jeremiah 22:30. 30. So, there's these passages. Isaiah chapter 7 and Jeremiah 22. Now, Jeremiah chapter 22 is a story about one of the kings of Israel. And this particular king was to be written childless. Jeconiah. And the point is that in the royal line of this king who was a Judean king as he went down through history, God said, I'm going to cut it off. There will never, ever from this king be one of his sons sitting on the throne of David. So that meant the royal line of David was cut off. So, So how does that work? Well, the problem is that Jesus' mother was a lady who was related to David. She had to be in order for him to be the Messiah. But the relation of Mary to David was not through the royal line. It was through a secondary line going back to David, given in Luke chapter 3. Joseph, however, in Matthew 1, is said to be related to David through the royal line. Well, if Joseph is the real father of Jesus, then he falls into the curse of Jeremiah 22. And Jesus cannot be the Messiah. So the only way Joseph and Mary can have a child is by virgin birth and have that child qualify as the Messiah. Mary, through Luke chapter 3, goes back to David satisfying the Davidic covenant. The Lord, Joseph, Jesus' dad, He cannot be the father of Jesus because if he is, he falls under the curse of Jeremiah 22. So what have we done here with this first point? We have said that this little piece of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, that piece of truth must be set inside a framework of other scriptural truth. And when you do that, you protect it. So people like Harry Emerson Fosdick, if they're going to deny the virgin birth in Matthew 1, okay, Harry, go ahead and deny Jeremiah 22, and while you're at it, cut out Isaiah 7. Why don't you take a razor blade, go through the Bible, cut out the stuff you don't like, and give me the rest. That's also called the cafeteria approach to Scripture. You know, you go pick the things you want and put them on your plate. So what you do is you force the opposition to explicitly deny the Scriptures And stop this stuff that Fosdick was trying to foist on the church in 1922. All right, that's one way. Another point about the Jesus birth is that there was a legal necessity for that birth because of Adam and all men. All men carry the seed of Adam, according to Hebrews chapter 7. And that means that every male. Is carrying the line and the genes of Adam down with him, and Adam is a fallen race. So that makes that he is the representative of the fallen race, and so the imputed sin that God credits Adam and all his seed with the fall. So if Jesus is part of Adam's seed, then Jesus is part carries imputed sin. Jesus cannot carry imputed sin and be the Messiah who dies on the cross. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be virgin-born to avoid that curse. Finally, there's a spiritual necessity of the fact that Jesus Christ must be virgin-born because spiritually, the sin nature is transmitted down through. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, watch the careful vocabulary of the apostle when he describes the likeness of Jesus' physical body. This is a tip-off that the apostle is being very, very careful how he depicts the humanity of Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ, if he's born with Adam's genes, now he's subject to inherent sin. Number two is imputed sin. This one's inherent sin. So this this spiritual carrying inheritance will come to Jesus if he isn't cut off from that somehow. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, what does it say? God sent His own Son in the flesh or in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see that word in there? See how careful it's constructed? The Paul said, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he was claiming that the Lord Jesus' body looked like our body, but it was only like our body in appearance. Actually, it was a sinless body, and that has profound repercussions about what happened on the cross. And we'll get to that later. But tonight, I just want to show you that you have to take these truths like the virgin birth of Christ and embed them inside this framework. And once you do that, you insulate them from all these attacks and assaults. You keep the Bible truths operating as a team. Now, out of that comes a certain set of doctrine, and we covered that last last uh, year, everything about the Lord Jesus teaches us something. And the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ means the incarnation. We use that word, what do we mean by the incarnation? The incarnation means that Jesus Christ was God and He was man without confusion, without intermixture. The Lord Jesus had within Himself divine nature... He has all the attributes of God, but although he has all the attributes of God, he also has the attributes of humanity. So you have Jesus with complete deity, and he has perfect humanity. Both of these. And this is called, you can sound very erudite to your less trained Christian friends, this is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That was used by theologians to, de- to. That's the that's the name. That's the vocabulary word for Jesus Christ. He is perfect God, and the way we we devise this saying summarizing 400 years of debate. He is undiminished deity, united with true humanity, without confusion, forever. Four things. Undiminished deity means he did not shed any of his attributes. True humanity means he had body, soul, and spirit of a man. Without confusion means that the creator-creature distinction was never obliterated or compromised. Forever means that Jesus Christ remains true humanity at the Father's right hand now. Said another way, somewhere in this universe there is a body probably six foot tall and occupying space that is Jesus Christ. He is located at a point tonight. He is at the Father's right hand and that Father's right hand is at a geometrical point in the universe. It has to be because his humanity has to have a point location. And out of all this, is this theory? No. Out of this comes certain practical applications for us in our Christian life. The first one that we said is that we will always be creatures even in heaven. Now, some Christians get hold of 1 Corinthians and say, oh, then we're going to know like we are known. It doesn't refer to becoming omniscient. We will always be creatures. We will always be serving the Lord. And the point is, in heaven, there will be work to do. It's not just taking an eternal vacation. There is going to be some work and labor. God didn't say anything else. It's not just rest. It will be restful labor because it will be free of conflict. But we're not going to sit there and contemplate our navels for the next two million years. There are things to do. So, we will always be creatures. The second thing is, very important, John 17, 3 says, this is the life eternal that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. What we mean by that is that... Both men and women, collectively in Adam, we were structured from the very beginning to know God. Your dog wasn't. You know, hey, sorry, pet lizard? No. But you are. Because you and you alone, the human species, alone is said to be made in God's image. You may love your pets. Pets may love you. I guess they love you. But they aren't knowing God. We know God. We were made to know God. And the fact that human humanity can know God is proved right here. Why? Because when God became incarnated, did He incarnate Himself as a lion? The gods of the ancient East did. Did God incarnate Himself as a fish? Dagon was a fish god in Philistia. Did God incarnate Himself as some other creature? No. When God chose to incarnate himself, what creature did he pick? Somebody on Galaxy 8YZ? Something out of Star Wars? Or did God... third thing that it means is that history is real. We write our history. 1 Corinthians 3 says we will be judged for the history that we write. The good works that we have done in the filling of the Spirit will be accepted. And there might be other works that we did just to impress people. Impress our girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, whoever, the teacher. But it wasn't really work done, motivated out of a concern to please God wood, hay, and stubble. goes away. But that's our record. And the fact that history is real and not a dream is seen by the fact that from ever and ever before the throne of God, what will we observe about Jesus' body? Of all the resurrection bodies, which is the only resurrection body in the universe that will have scars? The Lord Jesus. And what is that reminding us of? The fact that he left heaven, went to this weird planet, and died and was crucified for us. And forever and ever and ever his resurrection body will signify that. And that wasn't a dream. Those marks didn't get there by dreaming about it. They got there because it was a real history. And finally, the fourth thing, according to Colossians 2.8, all thinking of men, all educational ideas should start with a starting point of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we want to just say a few words about the second uh, great doctrine that we studied, and that was the life of Christ. That too, same technique, The unbeliever will take the life of Christ, and here's what the unbeliever does with the life of Christ. Here's what has happened to the life of Christ in the last hundred years of theology. This is what is is driving liberal people in the pulpit. You will today can hear people talk about Jesus, and they mean something by Jesus utterly different than what we mean. Here's what they have done. They have taken the New Testament... Picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have called that the charismatic gospel, meaning he's the preach. That's, quote, the gospel. Then, over here, they've separated out the real historical Jesus. This guy was some sort of a Jewish peasant that walked around. We really don't know too much about him, but maybe he was history, maybe he wasn't. But this thing over here is a fiction created by the church. So this is how Christ's life, the Jesus film for example, can be shown to someone, they can see it with their eyes, they can hear it, they can think about the message, and can totally neutralize it. Totally insulate themselves against the conviction of the gospel. Why? Simple. Not just the fictions. The early church made it up. Yeah, there was a Jewish carpenter, but you know, as the years went by, all these little stories grew up around him. And finally, he just have a myth. He had good spin on his, on his ministry. So, that's, that's the separation technique that's used. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ's true humanity, we went through many, many places in the New Testament and in the Old. And I want to take you to one of the most unforgettable passages in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus as a man, waking up in the morning. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. This shows you that it was on the minds of the prophets of the Old Testament, though none of them could really put it together. But here's a phenomenal reference that tells us how, in his humanity, the Lord Jesus learned... Because one of the things that grows out of the humanity of Jesus Christ, the fact that He has this perfect humanity, is that Jesus Christ had to be sanctified. Jesus had to be sanctified. Now, that's a little tough to think about, isn't it? Because that sounds like He was sinful. Why is that? It's because we, in order to get, was to be sanctified, is a battle with sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews, had to be sanctified. So that must mean that the word sanctified doesn't mean necessarily dealing with sin, does it? Did Adam and Eve have to be sanctified? Sure they did. What does sanctify mean then? Is it just struggle with sin? No. Sanctification is learning obedience. Adam and Eve, in a sinless environment without a sin nature, still had to learn how to obey. And so did Jesus. And in Isaiah chapter 50, in Isaiah chapter 50, we have this passage in verse 4, where prophetically the Holy Spirit, through Isaiah the prophet, is talking. About uh, He's impersonating, if you can call it that. I don't like that word. I, I haven't thought of another way of saying it. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one without a word. He wakens me... Morning by morning, he wakens me, my ear, to listen as a disciple. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face up from humiliation and spitting. Now, that's a messianic passage in the Old Testament. And what is the amazing point about this passage is it tells you something you never get in the Gospels about the Lord Jesus' personal life that the Lord, the Father woke the Son up every morning. He was so sensitive spiritually to His Father, He didn't need to set an alarm clock. The Father, God, was His alarm clock. And God the Father woke Him up. And why did the Father woke Him up? Because it was in the morning when God the Father would teach God the Son in His humanity. So that tells you a lot of stuff went on in the morning every day of Jesus' life. And by the time he went out and doing his ministries, he'd already spent quiet time with his Father. And that's why at the end, verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient. There's his sanctification. So as the Father taught the Son, morning by morning, Jesus obeyed, he obeyed, he obeyed, he obeyed. He built a historic strengthening pattern of obedience. So that out of all this we have three great practical applications to the Christian life that we covered last, last year. And let me um, sort of wind down the class tonight by showing you that Jesus' life all the details of those four Gospels are critical for their application to us as Christians. Because if they fall out and they're explained away as some little story that the spin doctors did in the early church, we got a big problem. So let's go through these doctrines. I apologize for not getting into the text on all these, but we just don't have the time tonight because we did cover it last year. The first area of truth that is concerned with the life of Jesus Christ is called the truth or the doctrine of kenosis. It comes from the word kenosis for humiliation or emptying, the chief passage is Philippians 2, 5-11. That's that passage we know about let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God and so on. He emptied himself and became a servant. Remember that passage? Well, that's a very important doctrine because here's what it does for us. It says that Jesus Christ in His life is a legitimate model for us Now, if he was God, if he was God and he could cheat by using his divine attributes to meet temptation, how could he be a model? Because you and I can come back and argue, yeah, yeah, I could be victorious in the Christian life too if I had omniscience. I could be, yeah, give me omnipotence for 15 minutes and I'll be obedient. But you see, the doctrine of kenosis cuts that off. What the doctrine of kenosis says is that Jesus Christ gave up the voluntary right or the right to use his attributes we wanted to. He was totally dependent on the Father. Could Jesus turn stones into bread? Sure he could, but not without the Father's permission. He, as God, could do it, but as an obedient man, he was under the same thing that we are. So, kenosis teaches us that Jesus Christ was the test pilot for the Christian way of life. He proved out all the assets that God has given us. He tested them. You know, I work at Aberdeen Proving Ground. One of the things they have over there is a big torture track. They take these heavy vehicles and they run them over these things that are going to be far worse than anything they're ever going to see out in the normal world. Twisting the frames, going over vibrating, using different frequency of vibrations, trying to tear these trucks apart, wreck their transmissions, wreck their suspensions, see how long, how many hundred hours of this banging and thrashing that these guys can take. Well, the doctrine of kenosis says that Jesus Christ, for 33 years, or 30 years, depending on the chronology, that 30 years he tested out the filling of the Holy Spirit and proved it worked. That's why he can be a legitimate model. So kenosis establishes the modeling of the person of Jesus Christ. The second great doctrine that we learned out of this is his impeccability. And we had a lot of discussion about that last year. And I said, same kind of discussion we had in impeccability, we're going to have it again with the cross of Christ. Impeccability says that Jesus Christ had genuine choice, but his victory was certain. He had genuine choice, but victory was certain. And this disproves the idea that you have to have sin in order to prove free will. You do not have to have sin to prove free will. Jesus Christ had free will in the sense of responsibility, just like every person. He had a freer will, than we did. And yet, he was absolutely certain to succeed. Not a chance of him ever falling under the plan of God. That means that the Lord Jesus Christ has a ministry for us. And to see that ministry, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. See, all this works together, and you just can't rip the Bible apart in pieces. It doesn't doesn't hold that way. Here is one of the practical things that we intuitively rely on the Lord all the time when we pray. And it's all related to the fact that if this is wrong, we couldn't rely on it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Can God the Father, well, let's think of the Trinity here, God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit. Can God the Father be put in verse 15? No. Why? Because God the Father never was tempted like we are. Can the Holy Spirit be put in verse 15? Not in this sense, no. Holy Spirit wasn't incarnate. So, which of the Trinity, then, is the center of our attention? God the Son. And this is why we don't go to Mary... We go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. We go to God the Father through Christ. We don't go to Jesus through Mary. See, that's that's upsetting the whole idea of the Trinity right there. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is our means to reach the Father because He is perfect. He is our intercessor. He is the one who was canonic. He is the one who is impeccable. And therefore, because of this, he endured every sin. He can empathize. He understands when we fall. He understands what temptation is. We have something that the Muslims don't have. You imagine Allah being put in verse 15. Allah's never walked around. Allah doesn't have dirt under his fingernails. Only Jesus Christ had dirt under his fingernails because he walked around and was tempted and tested. You see the richness of the Trinity? Oh, the Trinity is so heavy. Sure it's heavy. It's God. But the point is, those truths are important. That's what distinguishes our so great salvation. Okay, the third thing that we learn as a result of the life of the Lord Jesus, is we learn more about what infallibility is. That Jesus Christ made no errors of fact, even though He was a first-century carpenter, who so didn't know modern medicine, He didn't know modern physics that did not disqualify him from being perfectly truthful in his lifetime. Why do we hold to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was infallible? John 3, 11 through 12. This verse says, If I tell you earthly things and you do not believe me, then you cannot believe me when I tell you heavenly things. So Jesus admitted that He had to be truthful in every historical detail because if we find that He is a false witness to history, then we cannot trust Him with our sins. Now, do we have to access the record books of heaven? No. The only reason why we say we're forgiven our sins is because the Lord tells us that. Well, if He told us that uh, something happened in Bethlehem and it didn't happen, how do we trust Him about our sins in heaven? The two are tied together. You can't separate them. So, these are some of the truths that come out of these two events in the life of Jesus Christ. His birth and His resurrection. From the birth, we know He is God-Man. And from His life, we know that He is our model. And He is a legitimate model for us. He is a legitimate priest for us. And next week, we'll begin our study. We're going to, next week, just review those two terms. The Son of God and the Son of Man. Because those are two areas in the New Testament keeps coming up again and again. And I think it's good to clarify the vocabulary. So when we call the Lord Jesus the Son of God, we know what we're talking about. At least we try to know what the apostles meant when they used the word. Then we'll go on to the death of Christ. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. The fact that the Holy Spirit is here. That you have sent him to earth to illustrate, to expand upon, and to open our hearts To your word. We ask that you would empower us as Christians to have that sense of intimacy with you, a priest who was tempted, tested, who faced all the adversities that we face, who walked on our planet, who ate our food, who drank water, who saw our social problems who dealt with every conceivable temptation that can ever enter our life and was successful and has become a role model for us. Help us focus now upon Him as our role model, empowered by your Holy Spirit. In His name, Amen.